Friends, Brian here for Yes You Can Play Guitar. Thank you for joining us today to check out my interview with Grammy Award-winning bass player David Ellison. Many of you know him from his time with Megadeth. Now, this was the first interview I did for my channel. This was back in August of 2022. It's great that you guys can, you know, download the audio this way and enjoy the interviews while you're driving or taking care of business around the house. And uh, it was a very interesting interview. You know, it's kind of funny, one of these things with YouTube. Often a lot of people don't want to get into YouTube. They think there's a lot of negative, negative comments. What if people say things about me? But, you know, YouTube has a lot of ways of giving back. One of them for me is with my channels. I started meeting these amazing musicians who I really looked up to coming up on the guitar and in music. And I've loved Megadeth. They have definitely always been one of my top favorite bands and uh, just getting to meet uh, David was incredible. He was always one of the things when you pick interviews for YouTube, you want people that are very well spoken. And I knew David, he was uh, for years of seeing him doing interviews and talking. I knew he was very well spoken. He was very knowledgeable about music, the music business. David was amazing. He was very gracious. He was uh, enthusiastic. And he was also very generous with his time. I remember the day before, uh, I tested positive for COVID. I was really sick. So you can see me in the, uh, if you ever check out the video on YouTube, uh, you can see that I'm uh, holding it together. But in the intro part, I'm really sick. But uh, he was great. He was awesome to talk to. You know, there's with Megadeth, there's always been a lot of controversy. And, you know, we as fans can speculate and share our thoughts. But ultimately, we're not there. We, we don't really know 100% of everything that's gone on. I know David had a bit of um, controversy uh, a year beforehand when he was let go with uh, when he was let go for Megadeth, and of course, you know, uh, you know, some people threw their two cents in to you know make a joke at his expense. But I felt that the way he handled it was awesome. And I just want to say too, uh, with all the controversy going on around Megadeth, you know, Dave Ellison, he's he's always a busy guy. You know, when he got let go of the band, he just kept trucking. He's in a lot of different projects. He's been busy with that uh, Kings of Thrash project with former Megadeth guitar player Jeff Young and former Megadeth guitar player Chris Poland. And, uh, you know, he just keeps on trucking. He's, and he's a businessman. He's got, God, he's into movies now. I think he has a, had a movie come out about, uh, was it a horror movie? But he keeps very busy and he keeps on trucking. My interview with David Ellison. Now remember guys, if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, just hit click, click subscribe, takes one click, it means a lot, it really helps out, people have no idea all the extra hours of effort and work you got to put into a YouTube channel, and also, uh, if you like my reaction videos, so a lot of people, they know me from either my reaction videos, some people from my guitar lessons, I've been a professional musician and a guitar teacher for 30 years, also guys, if you want to look further into supporting my channel, I have two Patreon communities, one for my reaction groups. Those are people that like my reactions. Sometimes when I do interviews. So if you are a Patreon member there, you get to see over 30 videos that aren't on YouTube. You'll have access to that. More are uploaded every month. We have a lot of behind the scenes stuff. We've got community chats. Sometimes I'll have special guests on. If you're a level two or three on my Patreon, and you have a reaction request you'd like to see me do, your name will get bumped to the top of the list. You guys know that I get hundreds, hundreds of requests a month now. So, but if you're on my Patreon, I take your requests. I try to get at least one a month in for you. 
So you have to be a level two or level three Patreon. So many, so many benefits going on over there, guys. Check it out. It's really affordable. And also I have, that is at patreon.com slash yes, you can play guitar. Over on my guitar community, which is Patreon slash YYCPG guitar community. I'm going to have, and I'm just launching it next week. I'm going to have a lot of tabs, exercises, licks, stories, gear discussions, a lot of stuff you're not going to see on YouTube. You know, there's something there for everyone on guitar, but it's really, really great for either the frustrated guitar player or the beginner starting out. Okay. Remember, I got 30 years as a professional guitarist and instructor, and you get to benefit from that very affordably, and it helps me out a lot with my channel. So, guys, without further ado, here is my interview with Grammy Award winning bassist David Elson. Friends, Brian here for Yes You Can Play Guitar, and it is my absolute honor, absolute honor, to have on our show today, Mr. Dave El David Elson, formerly of Megadeth, of the band Lucid, of the band DF, and many other projects. Welcome, sir, for being here today. Thank you so much for your Thank time. you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm, go I'm going to try not to fanboy it. I'm going to be honest with everybody, as everyone knows of my channel. Uh, one of my dreams would have been to actually audition for or um, even jam with Megadeth back in the day. If Mr. Ellison would have said, here's a tire iron, that guy owes me money, uh, you know, <laughs> get the money from him and I'll let you get up and do a song. I'd say, uh, which limbs do you want broken and in what places? I would have done it. But that's uh, the right attitude. Yeah. yeah, thank yeah. You so, thank yeah. you so much for being here today. Um, just to get going, uh, you're a really busy guy. I couldn't get over how much stuff you got going on. Now, did I read recently that you did a reunion with your first band, Taz, from Minnesota? I did. So here's how it started. So, you know, the little town of Jackson, Minnesota. So picture the county fair. If you've seen the Reese Witherspoon movie, uh, what was it? Where I actually grew up in Alabama. She went to New York and then she came back to Alabama and there's like a yeah. county fair. Legally blonde. That is that, it. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know whatever what it was, but yeah, yeah. that is it. I mean... You know, Jackson and the county fair was a staple every year. I, I was in 4-H, so I used to work at the 4-H hamburger stand, you know, uh, doing that deal. Um, I uh, My father, when he was growing up, he was in 4-H and FFA, and so the, he exhibited cattle and things like that. And so I, I was in woodworking, so I exhibited like a, um, a, a toolbox that me and my dad built and got a blue ribbon for it, which is cool. So... Um, so they, they invited me back uh, to give a talk to the people. And, and I've been back there doing things with my coffee stop, you know, coffee store and various things over the years. So they asked me to speak. And then um, they said, hey, would you mind putting your band Taz back together, like your high school band? And I said, I said, sure. I said, we're all in touch and everybody looks good and I think still plays good. So let's see what we can do. And so we met in Mankato for a couple of days and we rehearsed. And then we went down and we did the show Friday nights and um you know just like every band you know we're it's it's not only the songs it's like you know we gotta have a set you know we gotta have a backdrop and merch and you know it's it's all this and i, I love that we think like that because to us our heroes were kiss you know yeah. how do we be kiss like that's the deal and 
And I think that's still in our hearts. So when you say you're a fan, I mean, God bless you. I hope you are because we're all fans, you know, and that's what, that's what still gets me on that stage is, is I'm just a fan of music. And the funny thing was, is we played the same set list we played 40 years ago. Right. And, you know, 40 years ago, you know, the Green Man Alishi and a whole lot of Rosie and, you know, these songs, these were like very dangerous, cutting edge, very heavy metal songs. Right. Now they're just, bar standards like every band plays these right yeah. so it was kind of fun to just play the same songs we played so many years ago and now actually everybody knows them you know even in jackson minnesota they know them. you know it's yeah. just a largely a you know kind of a country and western region you know the farmers and stuff but but the people there are lovely um it just reminds me when i go back there now how lucky i am to have grown up there um you know the ellison farm uh there's a there's a box out a ch- like a chest like a steamer trunk out in our our the shed on the on the family farm there and it's 1878 anders ellison e-l-l-e-v-s-e-n right they changed it to o-n they changed the v to an f so when they came over from uh Helso, norway um this trunk is out there and you know my nephew and i were talking about we preserve this trunk at all costs like this is this is the holy grail of of the ellison you know uh namesake and that's where they came over to jackson and bought the first piece of land and you know the farm started it was the ellison farm was established 1881 um so i mean i just think about how cool uh it is to come from that legacy you know and um you know, so as, as cool as it is to have a heavy metal legacy of my own, which is, you know, what I've done, it's just as cool to come from that legacy, you know, that I had nothing to do with, you know, none of us have any say in who, what, when, and where, to whom we're born. Um, but I'm very blessed that I was born there and to my family. Well, in my own personal opinion, I think it says a lot about you. How many people in, with your background in music would go back and play with the original band. Like how many people do it? You never hear that. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. it was funny because you know, me and Greg, so the guitar player Greg Handovit, he and I Handovit, moved to yes. LA. We moved to LA together. We knocked on on our neighbor's door to buy some beer and cigarettes. Turns out it was Dave Mustaine. And we did not know him. We did not know of this band he was talking about that he had just come out of called Metallica because they hadn't hit the Midwest. You know, back in those days, news traveled slow through music magazines, radio and stuff um but we got a quick study on that and you know the reality of it is is you know me and greg are the are the other founders of megadeth you know it was greg's idea to call the band megadeth based on this song that they've had called no survivors mm-hmm. that had the line in it the arsenals of megadeth can't be rid they said it's basically set the world afire is the song yeah. that's on, on on so far so good sweat so i mean greg was there with me on the downbeat and, you know, I got to say, you know, Greg, is, as much as he was only there a couple of months and then, you know, me and Dave moved on and had other members and, you know, continued on with Megadeth and Greg went to the Navy and now he, he became a lawyer and went back to Minnesota. You know, the reality of it is, is, you know, who knows if any of us would have ever been heard from, you know, Dave ever, who knows if he, I, you know, I would, I would, I certainly think that, you know, he got a second shot at it because of me and Greg. You know, and I and I know 100 percent for sure I'm thankful for meeting Dave because that gave me my shot, you know, and Greg is always thankful that I bring him into the story because he is part of the story. He was there, you know, he was the other guy. So, um, you know, 
it's, I think it's important. We all remember how lucky we were in June of 1983 that we met because um, all of our lives would have probably been very different had that not happened. And, you know, that kind of comes from the, the good Lord above leading, you know, lead two kids from Jackson, Minnesota out there and, you know, meet Dave and that happens. But you're right to go to Hollywood and beyond and have that journey and win a Grammy and go back to Jackson, (laughs) call my buddies up. It was it was awesome, man. I'm not going to lie. Who does that? I think that says a lot about you as a person. And uh, um, so just just to stay on the Todd's topic, were the other two people, was it Jerry and Brett? For the lineup? No, those guys, they came into the band. So it's funny. So it's me, Greg, our drummer, Justin Neuenschwander, um, who was, um, he he then, once he moved on, because he was a year older than us, and that's when Brett Fredrickson came in and um and jerry had come in and played with us just for a second with um maybe at the very tail end of taz and then we called our band killers after of course the iron maiden album um which if now of course i know people named their bands after megadeth song titles you know darkest hour and these things so I, i get it um and so that's when Jerry and Brett came in. And that's why they weren't part. Well, Brett, unfortunately, has passed away. He actually oh. lived here in Phoenix by me. And but that's why it was the, the three of us. And then um, we hired another uh, guitar player from Nobody's Puppet. That's why I'm wearing his T-shirt. I think okay, it's there you go. Pretty, pretty freaking baller shirt and band name. But anyway, Tim uh, and he's uh, his band is up by Minneapolis. And then we had another uh a uh, friend of ours, Sean Williams. And the funny thing is his mom was a classmate with me and Greg in school. And then we discovered Sean's, his, you know, her, her son, who's freaking killer, man. I mean, great, just shredding kick ass. He's got his Jackson guitar, you know? So it was funny that we all had Jackson guitars. We had three Jacksons on stage in Jackson at the Jackson County Fair. And so we, Jackson, you know, yeah. I definitely um, had to send that one upstream to Jackson to go, look at how freaking metal this is. This is cool, uh, you know? I have one more question about that before we go back to talking about the Minnesota thing. So Greg, hand of it, he went with you to when you moved in 83 to Los Angeles, but you also had two other friends, Brad and Brent that moved too. And they only stayed there for a couple of weeks and they're like, we're out here, dude. They did. Yeah. They, they realized very quickly this was not for them. And, um, you know, in fact, I remember there was a moment probably by, you know, I'd only been there a month, you know, and I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard just going, Oh my God, what in the hell did, what a, what is this this is like la does not look like it did on tv when i was watching like chips and charlie's angels and you know all the cool tv shows you know and and it it was a dirty city i mean hollywood boulevard was like pimps and hookers and ari karishinas and it was it was shitty man it was really dirty and disgusting and they've cleaned it up a lot since then yeah and i'm just walking down the street just going oh my god this is it huh and i wasn't going to go home because my brother was taking over the family farm and yeah. that, i was not going to be a farmer yeah. and i wasn't going to go to college and you know get like a professional degree so i was like this is it you know yeah. here i am and um you know and that's why again i i'm thankful for dave you know dave knew his way around the city he'd, he'd been on his own since he was 16 he had a very different life than mine growing up um and i appreciated that he was tough he took no shit he'd fight anybody at any yeah. you know for me for anybody and um he always had my back you know yeah. and that's uh you know those obviously different days back then but um we were all in it together and again i came from i mean look i was freaking definitely way upper middle class you know i mean the farmers as i look back on it and i knew it at the time i mean our our family did very well financially 
So for me to jump off that perch down into the bowels of Hollywood and, and go, all right, I'm going to eat fricking top ramen and, you know, mac and cheese and be homeless and live in my car until we can get this mega death thing off the ground. I mean, I committed, you know, I was in, and that's, I think probably yeah. those are maybe some of the bigger controversies is like, Hey man, the share and share and like, and all for one, one for all, which oh, we definitely yeah. had in the beginning, you know, and, but as you go on and managers get involved and we had a manager in the late nineties pulled the divide and conquer with Megadeth, you know, down the risk album and that. I won't and, mention and, his and, name, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. And that, and that, that changed. I mean, look, it ruined the lineup. Marty Friedman quit. I mean, it was, it, it, that, that got shitty and it never has really ever been the same ever since, you know, and that's, that's unfortunate, but you know, again, I, you know, not one i'm trying not to hold a grudge over it i'm trying to you know mm. get get better not bitter over it and, and and that's why for me to go back in time and, and revisit the classic early days that you know they weren't always easy i mean no. i just put a post up on my facebook today i got this little thing called the the killing chronicles because i got like well five days i'm gonna like this little some little uh, snippets about, you know, back in that day. And then next week, Jeff Young is going to take over and do some stuff. And so far, it's a good select. So we can kind of speak to the spirit of, of, of that, of those days. Um, and especially on those records, because that, again, those, that story hasn't been told so much yet, you know, and, and it's a lot of great history. And what I find interesting is how many young people are excited about that history, you know, um, yeah. Guys our age, we've kind of heard it a bit. We've kind of grown up with the big four and everything, but there's a lot of young, you know, metal fans coming up that they, it's, this is like history to them. So they, now they get to experience it and be a part of it. Um, going back to Minnesota thing, because I've got a lot to talk about with Jeff Young. He's a really yeah, yeah. guitar player. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to assume that you didn't like the climate because you live in, is it Arizona now? I do, but it was very refreshing. I love, except for the flies, you know, the, okay. uh, I got, they asked me to be a judge at the barbecue contest, which was really awesome. And, uh, but, uh, the, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's flies. There was no mosquitoes back there though. Cause it got a little colder at night, but I love, I love the climate. The crops look great. Um, you know, there was plenty, you know, just, it, it just, everything looked wonderful back there. It was like really blue skies, green, green fields and, Green acres, if you will, you know, and it's nice to see the farmers are thriving. You know, there's mm -hmm. probably 20 years. My brother has since passed on. Oh, but no, there's about 20. Yeah, there's about 20 oh. years in there where my brother, when he was running the farm after my dad had passed it, it, it was hard going. I mean, it's a yeah. lot of hard work and, of course, a lot of risk and expense and everything. And, you know, grain prices weren't that doing that well. And so it's nice to see that the farmers having a, a, a good windfall and, and doing well, you know, that's not an easy life. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of work um, and a lot of long hours. Just, it's kind of like being a musician. I think, I guess it's probably why being a musician is no different than being a farmer. It, it literally is feast or famine. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, were you a hockey fan being uh, from Minnesota? You know, my dad wasn't a sports guy, so I learned most of my sports from other buddies in school and um, a lot of the outdoor stuff like shooting and hunting and snowmobiling and a lot of the outdoor stuff that I learned from another neighbor friend, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that's what's cool back there is that everybody pulls together. And, and, you know, just the camaraderie of the community is, is so cool. And it's still like that at, at what somebody was telling me about how uh, somebody's wife got sick and, you know, 
all these neighbors rallied around and they they help and that's that's what you do back there in that community and i take that for granted sometimes living in a bigger city mm-hmm. i will say this though arizona is this is kind of where the midwest when they retire or they snowbird they come here so that's yeah. probably why this always felt so nice here in arizona because these are my people this is my tribe here well being canadian i had to ask you the hockey question i do have a curveball for you being from minnesota sure yeah um when you were coming up were you aware of prince and the Minnesota, the Minneapolis sound and, and that movement as you're coming up with music before you moved out. I knew, I knew only a little about it because again, I graduated in 1983 purple rain came out in like what 84, you know, okay. something like that. So Prince was not a big sensation. That was after I'd moved to LA that he became the big sensation. And I did know that, you know, my, future was in California. In fact, I remember very clearly rehearsing uh, in a building on our farm because my band's all, Taz, we always rehearsed out in, on the mm-hmm. farm, on my farm, because we had the room for it. And my dad was very supportive with, you know, giving us a building to go make noise out there. And um, I remember, you know, Van Halen was, was, you know, they came out in 78. And by like 80, 81, you know, uh, that scene was starting to take off, largely driven by Van Halen. But, you know, then uh, Ozzy was getting his musicians for his new solo band post-Sabbath, of course, out there. Then Motley Crue came on the scene. So, you know, it seemed like to me everything was happening out in California, you know. So I I remember clearly going, I got to get to L.A. That's where it's happening. I'm not going to Nashville um i'm not going to new york i'm going to la and so my mind was made up probably by the time i was a sophomore in high school that i was you know my my future was out in la um i read an article you used to have a column i don't remember if it was guitar player or guitar world going back a number of years but you were writing about it always stuck with me you'd said that look if you're going to invest in equipment get good equipment and it was interesting to me that I was reading your book, of course, everyone. I got mine off Amazon. And actually, there's a second book, too, from what I understand. There is more life with death. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. In your book, you got that from your dad. He, your dad your dad sounds pretty awesome, the way he was supportive of you and your music. Well, dude, so here's the story. So right here, so this PVT-40 bass, right, which was yeah. the very first basses and guitars so pv they made the t60 guitar the t40 bass right so i saw this we went on a family vacation to um florida and we went to atlanta and nashville and i remember stopping into this music store and i saw one of these and this i actually bought this down the street like a few months ago it's an 81 and i bought it for like 699 i think out the door right and it's freaking killer man I, i just love it but at the time, this bass was 240 bucks. It had just come out. I remember seeing Ross Valerie from Journey was playing one. Um, um, and I remember I, I picked it up and I saw it and I was getting excited about it. And my dad asked me, he said, he goes, he goes, you like it? I said, I do. He goes, is that the bass you really want? And I said, well, the one I really want is this BC Rich Mockingbird. And, and he said, well, how much is that one? And I said, that's uh, $900. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think he'd be pissed. And he, and it, so he surprised me as you read in the book, he said, he goes, well, 
if you buy this one for $240, you're still going to want that one for $900. So let's just go get you the one for $900 because that you will, you'll forget about this space. This really isn't the one you want right now. You want that one. And so he told me, he said, it's better. You're better off spending more to get the right, to get what you really want than buying twice. In other words, buying this one and then buying that one anyway, you know, now I'd be so what, true, That's you know, good. 12, really 1300 bucks into the deal. Yeah, yeah. So I was really, you know, and I still try to have that approach now that it's like, you know, don't make it about the money because it's only money and you can make more. Um, yeah. And, you know, have an abundant mindset rather than a, a lack mindset. And, you know, again, obviously don't swipe your credit card and buy things you just literally can't afford. But if it's within a couple of bucks, spend a couple bucks more and really get what you want. You'll enjoy it. The experience will be better. And especially when these ultimately become a work tool, you know, um, for us to make a living with, you know, for sure, it's the better way to go. And so the irony that I bought that, I moved to LA two years later or so, two, three years later. And, um, and I meet Dave. He's got his uh, BC Rich bitch that he had with Metallica. Um, so instantly, that's kind of a cool connection. Um, Kerry King from Slayer plays with us a little later that year. He's a major BC Rich guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> All these BC oh, Riches. Yeah. And then literally about, I don't know, six months later, Gar Samuelson joins the band. He's the general manager of BC Rich. <laughs> so BC Rich was meant to be, right? So, um, you know, again, you know, in hindsight, this all makes sense, you know, but at the time when you're going through it, it's uh, you're like, you know, so thank goodness, you know, Pop said, hey, oh. let's spend a little more money and get you the right tool for the job, you know? Yeah, and the PA and the rehearsal space. And it's like, man, this that's a cool dad. You know, he, he told me later, he said, he goes, when I was probably in, in my later teens before I left home, you know, he said, he goes, uh, he said, um, you know, I started to pull you back from the farm work, you know, because there's a lot of things, you know, backing a tractor up to a trailer, you could pinch your fingers, you know, get your hair caught in a PTO on a tractor and freaking scalp yourself, you know, yeah. and so he saw, he goes, you know, we had an indoor swimming pool. We had a lot of land to mow the grass. He said, he just said, because you do those jobs. You know what I mean? Someone's got to do them. You do those. We'll do all the other stuff over here. And, and, you know, he didn't let me out of, you know, working, you know, doing chores and doing stuff, but it's like, he, you know, he, he, he told me, he said, he goes, I knew your, your hands were valuable, you know, and that you're keeping your, your look and keeping that together. You know, as much as he didn't understand music, he certainly understood business, you know, and he, he knew that, you know, to some degree, this is the product, you know, and this, these are the means by which it happens. And I mean, I never went skiing. I didn't do any of that stuff growing up. I still have never skied, you know, because I don't, there's always a gig coming up and I didn't want to break a leg or break an arm. And, no, you know, to me, that stuff, yeah, whatever with all, I didn't care about that. I just wanted to play gigs with my band, the Taz yeah. and, you know, and killers and my other bands. So, yeah. and I'm still like that, you know, I'm still like, you know, it's it's wake up and like all right what song are we working on today or you know what interview are we doing this is this yeah. is just we're wired this way you know this is what we do um so for all the bass players out there when you're building your foundation on the base in, uh, in minnesota mm -hmm. how did it start like did you take formal lessons or were you just jamming learning riffs you know were you just doing exercises with a metronome how did that start quite good question so fortunately i had learned how to play um piano on my mother she had a Wurlitzer organ so I took lessons from the church organist in the area 
So that taught me how to read and write, you know, read music, right? To formally learn treble clef, bass clef, and all that stuff. So then I took up the tenor saxophone and orchestra band in fifth grade. So I understood how to read music, playing in the orchestra band. I understood how to be a member amongst members, you know. The flute or the shredders and the tubas play the big notes, you know, and I was set somewhere in the middle, right? So by the time I, you know, got into rock and roll and I got a bass at age 11, I could already read music. So I bought, I got the bass, I bought a Mel Bay electric bass volume one and two book. And I literally sat in the basement and I just sat and I would just practice, you know, playing a C, you know, major scale, right? And just kind of learning how to, you know, like one, two, one, two, one, two, and, you know, learning how to, where to put my hand, you know, and that's why I've always played like that. I've always kind of had this C grip, you know, like this, rather than like this, you know, I've always had this kind of C grip so that I can play up on the finger tips. Cause that was how I was sort of taught from those books. No, so, good, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. The less skin that touches the string, the cleaner, the note, the more precise the sounds. So that's why my playing has always been really clean. Um, and it's, you know, I don't use a lot of fuzz and distortion and stuff like that. I, you know, and effects, I, you know, I, I want to tell the bass and the amp what I want to hear, you know, I don't want the, the gear sort of to color my sound. So that's how I started. And then, um, you know, then it's funny, you know, I, I, my brother had a couple of friends, so we started our first band together with them. Um, and then I met Greg Handovit in the hallway. He had just moved into town and we literally finished each other's sentence about some kiss topic. And it's like, so, you know, back that day, you know, bands, well, like even today, but when, when you discover a band and kiss was not a big band at that time. So it's like, dude, you know, about kiss. Oh my God, freaking, let's hang out. You know? So I'd been playing bass. Greg decided to get a guitar. And so we put our bands together and, um, which quickly became Taz. And so that's what I mean, Greg. I mean, we've literally been like childhood friends since like fifth grade, you know, playing in bands, talking about bands and everything that goes with it. So, um, you know, then, you know, then playing in bands. And that was what I wanted to do. I wasn't, I didn't want to just be a, a shredder and sit around in my bedroom and shred. I was just, you know, practicing was a means to get to rehearsal, to get to the stage, to go play. And, okay. and it's still like that for me today. Um, I have another interesting curveball I'm going to throw you, but a nice one. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with John Ricci of Exciter. I, I grew up in the auto oh, area. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, at least, at least I like to think that we're friends. At the very least, we're very strong acquaintances. I talk yeah. to him every now and then and everything, but I've known Tell him. John, years. hello. We did, we did the Killing is My Business. Uh, what was that? What, what, was, what was the record that they had out when we did the Killing Tour? Do you remember? <sighs> I can't remember. It had like a axe and slider a knife i forgot what it was anyway so a Continue. long, time, Carry a long, a long yeah. time ago he told me a very funny story about that tour and he, he's like yeah we, we played with megadeth and I, I think you guys played in ottawa i think it was ottawa that he was talking about but uh he was like yeah so like uh dave or the daves were like oh come on i guess you guys had like a was it a mobile home or a trailer or they had a mobile home. We, we had a van or a car, whatever, okay. whatever vehicle survived the last three shows. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. I, I, I kind of forget now, but he was invited yeah. on whatever vehicle you guys were traveling in and you were guys, and he's talking and people were drinking or whatever, and everyone's being friendly. And, uh, and he just said, yeah, that the, then the, the vehicle started like moving and he's like, they're, they're starting to leave the city. They're getting onto the main highway. And he's like, Dave, I don't know which Dave he was talking to. He's like, I, I, can you drop me off? And I guess you guys just carried on with, with him or something. And I don't and know. He what stayed on. 
You know, I mean, it's funny. I wonder if that might have been the Peace Cells tour because we did have a motorhome at that time and we had a, a sound man uh, who was from uh, Montreal, I believe. And he probably, because we, yeah, we were, uh, we, I think we had a motorhome by then and that, that's probably when it happened. We probably just had, you know, everybody's having drinks and Well, I can time we step it for you because <laughs> I said, well, who, who was the guitar, who was the lead guitar player? And he said, I think the guy's name, he was just filling in. His name was like Mike Albert or something. God, so that was the Killing is My Business tour. So, yeah. yeah. Have you yeah. ever heard from that guy again? Or is he just... From John or Mike Albert? My, Mike, Mike Albert. I'll say oh, yeah, John no, for Mike, you, though. Please do. Yes. I will. Tell him alone. No, Mike and I, Mike and I, chat, we actually talked by phone uh, last year. We text. Uh, no, we're, we're, we, we're in touch. And, you know, he plays great. He, he, in fact, he looks great. He plays great. He's always busy gigging with various things. So, yeah, he's, um, um, in fact, I would say he's probably has a much more current sound now than he did when we did the Killing Is My Visitor. I mean, he was a little older than us. And I remember seeing yeah. the Gar's house up in Pasadena. We're looking at the tour on paper. We're going to lose like 10 grand just before we even left the house. And Mike's like, you guys are crazy. It's like, if you're going to lose 10 on paper, you're going to lose 20. We're like, ah, whatever. We'll figure it out, you know, and. He's like, as long as I get paid, because he was just kind of a side man, you know, for the thing. Yeah. But he he went along with it, and um, they were just fun experiences. And, you know, most of it ended up on my dad's credit card, you know, so we yeah. somehow pay that off when we yeah. got home. But because uh, I never was, did hit yeah. my parents up. I never hit my parents up for any money. I mean, they covered yeah. a couple things, but I never, you know, I never wanted to be that kid. It was important to me that it's like, hey, man, I made the decision to leave home. I'm going to, you know, figure this out. So we paid our own bills. Um, so I'm going to switch over more to a technical question for you. Uh, mm -hmm. Playing metal, a lot of people don't understand, especially if you've got two guitar players that are, you know, have a lot of overdrive distortion. Bass, you mm -hmm. have a very distinct bass tone. And um, uh, did it take time for you guys to understand about like EQing? And like, mm -hmm. I know when I played in bands, I always hated when the other guitar player had his mid range cranked up. And it's like, dude, you can't do that. We have to kind of how did you guys go through that process of you getting your EQ on the bass where it pops out and, and the other yeah. two guitar players are balanced with their rhythm tones? Well, I'm really lucky because I guess growing up on the farm, I had a lot of room. First we rehearsed in the basement, then it was out and my dad actually gave us a shed that we just converted. He insulated it, put some big heaters and stuff in there for the winter so we could rehearse. And, um, and that, and so by, I, I was the guy that bought the PA, you know, my dad helped me buy a big PA system. So I started to understand crossovers, you know, and how PAs work, right? So there's, there's the lows, the mids, the highs, and, you know, biamping and triamping and all these different things. And, and back in the uh, probably early 80s, bass players started to investigate biamping and even triamping their bass rigs, right? So we're basically, it was like a PA. So um, I got to really, um, and even in shop class, I built four of these JBL. It's the single scoop bins. I don't know if that's the 4530 or the 4560. So I built, I, th I think I had one, so I built three more, right? And I, and I think I, God, I seem to remember, like I, I can't remember if I took those out to LA with me, but I remember I took my PA out to LA with me. So when we first started with Megadeth, I was basically using my PA, <laughs> right, that I had from Minnesota. Yeah, um, which was pretty freaking huge and had a lot of power, and and so that was my base now. And um, you know what we discovered? You know, I bought a couple of Marshall. Uh, 
I think they were the Marshall major 200 watt heads. And then there are these, they had these, it was, it was a base amp. So it may not have been the major, but it was a 200 watt tube head. And then I bought these two Marshall, they were two fifteen, two by 15 cabinets. So they were square and the speakers were set at a diagonal, right? Not up and down, but like it is a diagonal. So I had a stack of those <clears throat> and it just didn't sound that good. I mean, Marshall has never been, bass has never been their thing. You know, no. they're, they're fantastic with, uh, guitar amps obviously but so what i discovered with the pa thing is that you know you get your tone that's really i don't know if you can even hear this because i got headphones in but you know you got your you know the bass even now it's real clean because if the low end was down and i realized after starting to record for a while when the bass gets right down into the kick drum you know like when the kick drum beater hits the head and there's that concussion that if behind every beat, there's a bass note that follows, you know, he provides the concussion. I provide the sort of the cannonball that comes after, right? That yeah. is sort of been my visual approach of, of bass and, you know, Marshall amps, which is mostly what I've grown up playing with, you know, they're very heavy in the mid range. And so, you know, if the bass is down here and then the Marshalls are here, I added some of this click up on the top that sort of scooped up around that. So I scoop a lot of my mids out. Like, you know, when I worked at Peavy, um, working with Harley Peavy was a real treat. You know, he's, he, you know, him, Jim Marshall, Leo Fender. I mean, they're kind of the three icons of the, of the equipment yeah. business, right? And, you know, talking about various things. But essentially, the California smile is what they call it. If you take a graphic equalizer, right, and which we had with our PA systems, and, and you can boost or you can cut, right? So you, but you put it in the middle. If you looked at my tone, it's basically a California smile where bass is boosted, trebles boosted, and the mids are cut in the middle because that's where the marshals live, right? That's where yeah. the guitars are. So if you sort of looked at it visually, that's what my tone looks like. It's, it's a lot of bottom, scooped mids, a lot of curve up and a nice point on the top. And that probably is because i had those experiences with the pa now if you think of like a, an ampeg svt is usually kind of boosted in the mids right that's kind of a feature of that amp so some of the more modern svts i've i've learned to work with them because i could kind of get that california smile in there yeah. uh, that's what i liked about the galleon kruger and the harky cabinets it's why i mostly use the harky stuff because that has that nice scooped mids but it's got that real sharp point on the top because the aluminum speakers yeah and um so that's why that that has been most my go-to sound and you know you develop your own tone within any group you're working with because um you know if you just walk in and say hey here i am this is my tone it's like well we need you to work with that because you know you kind of need to form a sound together you know and yeah. so i think for me, of course, you know, for almost 40 years of Megadeth, you know, that, you know, that, that became the, the, the setting by which my tone was developed. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question that has always interested me. And I think it interests a lot of people. I don't know if you've ever been asked this, but so when Megadeth was coming together in the beginning and it was decided that uh, Mustaine was going to do vocals back then, there weren't a lot of guitar players doing complicated riffs and vocals at the same time. It just was really interesting to me how Hetfield had to step up 
and do the crazy stuff he was doing in vocals. And same with Dave Mustaine. Like, it, I, I think that really says something about the two of them. But do, did Dave have to struggle to really get good at doing both? And you do some, like, you're playing some crazy riffs when you're doing backups too. Like, how did you guys sure. work on that? Yeah, it's a lot of like this thing, right? <laughs> you start rubbing yeah. your tummy and patting your head. Well, you know, as I understand, James was first a singer um, in the band before he was the and and you know Hugh Tanner and then Dave, you know, became the the guitar players and then James. You know, it's pretty interesting because we've kind of watched James Hetfield learn how to play guitar growing up, right in front of our eyes, right and. Yeah. You know, starting with the earliest stuff. And then, of course, once Dave wasn't there, he became the primary uh, guitar player and, and just how how good he's gotten. And, of course, the the riffs and, I mean, the right hand of doom on all those those riffs and stuff. Um, and for Dave, you know, while he was in Metallica, my understanding was that he was the he was like the front man. He would talk in between the songs. He was kind of the entertainer. Uh, but James was the singer, right? So there's this interesting dynamic um, there. But so fast forward now we're in Megadeth. Um, you know, we were auditioning singers because we were at this point probably going to be a five piece. And um, the final straw was on New Year's Eve of 83 and 84. We were rehearsing downtown at our rehearsal spot and the singer didn't show up, flaked out. So Dave, out of frustration, took... I mean, I seem to think it was chosen ones and he had the lyrics and he just pinned it on the wall and he stood up and he just took the mic and he fricking, we played through the song and he sang and he almost passed out. <laughs> you know, didn't know how to breathe. trying to sing and play. I didn't know, you know, wasn't thinking about breathing. Yeah. And I, and I stood there and I went, dude, that, that was fucking awesome. And he looked at me like I was, he goes, really? I said, dude, come on. That was fucking awesome. I said, you're writing this shit. Who's going to sing this stuff? Like, you think of how many singers we've tried to get to sing this stuff. They don't get it. You know, they're, they're, this was, this was a new painting. You know, this is, a, this is something the world had never seen before. And, you know, for me, and I'd say even for Greg Handovic, because we just talked about this last week, and when we got to LA and we met Dave, we were like, this is exactly what we want to do. You know, yeah. this, this is it. You know, this is Iron Maiden next level. This is Def Leppard next level. This is Diamond Head and Motorhead and Venom, like next level. You know what I mean? We were like, fuck yeah, this is it. This is the one. So that's why, you know, um, you know, to find, and Kerry King, I mean, God, Kerry walked in and just would play these riffs note for note. Yeah. Dave would play them to him once and he'd just play them right back. Like, geez. So it's like, these were the, you know, there was a small group of people who really got and understood not just the notes, but the heart, you know, your hair's a certain way, you wear the right shirt, you got the BC Ridge guitar, you know what I mean? You're, 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 you're just a soldier who walks in ready to do yeah. this, you know? I, I remember, and, I, sorry, Dave, please. No, 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 go ahead, uh, go ahead. I was going to tell you, um, many years ago, I remember learning the song Holy Wars for a band I played in many years ago. Right. And when I learned the song, the first thing I, I could think of was like, how the hell does Dave Mustaine play this and, and do the vocals? Right. Well, yeah, so it's, it's, I had an interesting moment, you know, um, Jason Newstead left Metallica. Yeah. Um, a call was made to Dave about me being on a short list, uh, to which he gave his blessing and even called me and told me I never did get the call for Metallica. So that's just leave that there. But, 
Um, I've been dear friends with those guys, still am. And, um, you know, I thought, well, I don't know if I'll get the call. Probably not likely. There's a gazillion other bass players. And we had just recorded The World Needs a Hero. We just signed a big record deal. I mean, Megadeth was my band. You know what I mean? So it's it's uh, it was fun to entertain it for a minute. But, you know, obviously they they found the right guy, you know, in yeah. uh, Robert. Um, and uh, but I sat down for the first time since probably kill them all came out because i love kill them all because i love i love no life to leather man so to me i like kill them all it's the sort of the extension of no life to leather i can play most of the riffs on guitar i just i like it just as a fan you know um and i sat down and thought well let me play through a couple of metallica songs and it was just, and it was stuff off the black album which is you know not the more complex stuff in my opinion, at least side A, right? And I, and that was the first time it really hit me how different James lays his vocal phrasings over top of his riffs versus what I'd grown up with in Megadeth and how Dave had laid his vocal phrasings over his riffs. Yeah. And I kind of took it for granted because I thought they would be more similar and they're not. There couldn't be two more different approaches to it. And I guess that's what makes the bands sound like they do. They're so so different. Um, and I think probably the first time I really saw that, I'll say genius, because it was very clever, is in Dave's yeah. writing, is when we were in Indigo, we were, I think we're at Indigo Ranch, um, in recording Killing Is My Business, and he went in to go sing Killing Is My Business, because we'd played the music, but Dave would, Dave would never sing at rehearsal. He still doesn't. He doesn't like he doesn't like rehearsing vocals, right? And I'd always have to push him, like, hey, can we can we practice the vocals so we can at least get the background, you know? So it's just it's just his thing. Um, and so the first time I think I ever heard the "Killing Is My Business" vocal melody was in the studio when we were cutting the record. And you know, he's in there singing that melody, and he did what Axel would later do, which is sing the vocal melody and then add a low. Uh, an octave lower and sort of sing the same thing together. Uh, people were not doing that back then. That was a very kind of unique approach of, of doubling the vocal. Um, but then when it came to the, you know, the chorus, you know, the, you know, to sing that. Yeah. Good. I'm like, that is like the most melodic assassination song i've ever heard in my life you know yeah. <laughs> because because the lyric you know is it and it, it's witty it's 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 a clever lyric it's not a mean lyric but you know to sing that melody especially over that chord change um i was like man this is this is really freaking cool what we're doing here you know oh, and this was next level nobody was doing this and right. um so that's you know again always appreciative for the moments that have happened yeah um when you mentioned about you got the short call there for uh metallica when they uh, very sadly after cliff passed uh i've often wondered who was all on that list of uh, bass players that audition but i wanted to ask you have you read alex skolnick's book i haven't read his book i should read it it's so. it's, it's really um, good uh there's a funny part yeah, in i'm it. sure it is uh at that time, because I guess they were rehearsing in the same building, I guess where Metallica was auditioning bass players in 86 okay. after whatever. So he just talks about how all of a sudden their bass player, Greg, just disappeared for two weeks. 
and they couldn't figure out where he was. And Alex and Eric were kept calling him, going like, "Where are you?" And uh, yeah. little did they know he was working on his learning Metallica songs. And I guess he had an audition with them or anything. Uh, he just yeah. has a different sense of humor. But I, I thought I, I thought that was really funny. But um, well, you know, all of it, it's, it's more than just playing the notes. And again, you know, I, I, you know, Trujillo's a good hang. I think he and Kirk are friends, mm-hmm. snowboard buddies or surfer buddies, you know what I mean? And that's just as much as anything, especially at that point. And, you know, it's like, okay, you know, anybody who's going to walk in here is going to know how to play the notes. Okay. It's just, can we hang with the guy? You know, I mean, we've certainly had our, I had our lineup changes in, in, you know, Megadeth over the years. And, and, you know, at some point it's like, okay, the guy can play, he looks cool. Like, is he a dick? You know, can we live yeah. with this guy on the road? Is he, is yeah. he got some quirky, weird thing that we're going to find out about later that we're not going to want to deal with? So that's, you know, that's it as much as anything. And, um, you know, so, and at some point, you know, just stability, you know, just creating yeah. stability so that, that, you know, the, the bigger picture can carry on. So again, they, you know, and again, it, it's, uh, you know, I, it all played out the way it was supposed to. And, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I did, did, you know, got to do Megadeth and everything else that we did. So, uh, so moving along, then Jeff Young comes in the band and I wanted to talk yeah. with Jeff cause you were doing the uh, Kings of Thrash tour with him. You have some dates. I yep. think you're more in California, but, uh, um, yeah, I, thought, I, th- I think Jeff's a wicked guitar player and, uh, he was kind of, w- w- did he go to GIT? Was he in with that crowd? He did. He went to GIT. You know, it's so funny. You know, he and I got along well. We roomed together a lot because back in the So Far So Good Sweat Tour, we were always, band and crew was always shacking up, sharing rooms together, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, he and I had spent a lot of time together. I did a lot of guitar playing with him. I learned a lot of stuff from him, which was fun. And, um, you know, so now to connect with him all these years later, and we connected through the Nick Menz movie, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've stayed in touch with him. I've we even jammed together once at a Ronnie Montrose tribute thing at NAMM a few years mm-hmm. ago. So uh, we've not been complete, you know, completely estranged from each other. But uh, to meet on the Nick Menza thing, <coughs> excuse me, was really good because it said, and we, you know, we've gotten, we, we've written some songs together now. Um, then he called me to come over and jam at the whiskey for this big four tribute. And then that spawned basically the Kings of Thrash is like, wow, that was freaking cool. And that was a lot of fun. And, yeah. You know, we just realized there's these songs that, um, you know, I, this this idea had come to me, you know, and it came to me back in um, last fall. I was at an autograph show in the East Coast and people were bringing me Killing Is My Business Records left and right. And, I, and it just reminded me this record needs to be played. It needs to be performed. And um, and, you know, same as So Far So Good So What, to me, those are kind of these two really special records that um you know we're, they they never went unnoticed but you know they didn't get the big fanfare again like peace cells and rest in peace and all this stuff right so to me i i made it my mission is like you know what let's let's unearth these things and let's bring these out to the stage and play them and you know playing with jeff he told me he said after megadeth i think he said he, he intentionally forgot how to play megadeth songs he just wanted to move on and yeah. and just kind of you know forget because when you come into the band man it is a deep dive and it is a heavy compression of you really have to live that music in and out day in day out all the time in order to really grasp what it is and and and, and he did that and then when it, when the gig ended for him he moved on but um he has been doing and, you know, a ton of heavy lifting on this. I mean, he is really working with our singer Chaz and the drummer 
uh, Fred, you know, to get through this stuff, even he and Chris Poland working on, on these yeah. things. And again, this is, this is, this is a celebration, not a retaliation. You know, this is, yeah. this no, is no, a I good moment. Can. This is, this is a happy moment to celebrate these songs and these tracks and these records. Um, so it's, it, we go at it with, with just fun. It's like, it's kind of like putting Taz back together. It's like, wow, wouldn't it be fun if we did that? And we did, you know, it's like, wow, wouldn't it be fun if we went out and played these records and we're doing it. And so it's, it's, it's meant to be just this celebration and pinging, bringing people together. And, you know, honestly, yeah. that was kind of always my role in Megadeth. It was, you know, Dave always called me the ambassador and, you know, I was always that guy and, yeah. and, and I am that guy. So it's like, let me just continue that role in our community and, and um, have one of, of goodwill, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I would say about Jeff too is, I mean, he's got wicked technique. He's, he's a really amazing guitar player, but he didn't sound GIT, I, I, nothing against GIT, but he didn't sound like a GIT clone with his phrasing yeah. and his licks. He kind of had his own thing going on, it sounded like. He did. No, that, no, I, I know exactly what you're saying. He, he's a educated, schooled musician, um, but he, in fact, you know, now that he's been telling me and we've been listening through the songs, you know, ripping the tunes apart, learning them, uh, I didn't realize how much stuff he played on. I thought he just kind of came in, banged four solos, and that was it, but he played the acoustic on Darkest Hour. He played some acoustic, I think, maybe on Mary Jane. There's a bunch of stuff that oh, yeah. I did not know that, that he had played. So he did. He did a lot more work on that record than I I thought, and um, mm -hmm. you know, so he's he knows that record inside and out. Um, you know, he's also you know going through you know just learning. He's just really you know he's it, it he's a, it's fun to play with him because he's a seriously educated and skilled musician. Is there you know I don't want to be too premature like too uh, premature on this. I think it's. You guys are going to do some shows and see how it goes, but you think there might be a chance you might come to Canada? I think so. I mean, that, that was the whole thing. Let's let's pop four of these up, see if anybody cares. <laughs> see yeah. if they, you know. And it seems like everybody, you know, phones blown up. You know, people are calling, the promoters are calling, and people want to see it. It's interesting. It's cool, you know. And again, yeah. these are this was a deep dive into a very particular period of the band's history and the catalog that um may not get performed elsewhere so it's like hey we'll do it you know and yeah. um and, and 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 again i think it's uh we're qualified you know certainly our resume and our our pedigree and our history with the group uh people it, it's legitimate you know um and it's and i gotta say it's it's fun man i i think yeah. it's fun these and it, i gotta say man killing is my business there is a lot of deep stuff on that record and i because yeah. of the tempos and because of the speed, a lot of that kind of got, it gets a bit glossed over because the production of the record wasn't super great because we didn't have a lot of money to do it at the time. You know, now live going into it, there are some rhythmic figures and some grooves that I think are, are coming out in the live setting that are so hip. Um, you know, there's this almost funk kind of R&B vibe to some of the rhythms um, that are so cool. Um, and you know, when we wrote those songs, especially Skull Beneath the Skin and even um looking down the cross, you know, these songs were written very slow. You know, the original tempos were, you know, they were like, you know, you 
They weren't like, no, they are now. They're like, no, right? So they were really cool. So one of the things we're, we're focusing on is bringing out the, you know, just the kind of the sleazy, slinky, greasy groove that's, that's in there, you know, yeah. because it really is in there. And uh, I think our drummer, Fred, is helping a lot with that. So it's, I think people are going to really enjoy what, what they're going to hear. So if we go back to the chronology after Jeff Young leaves the group, it's well documented about Dimebag Daryl. Uh, you guys have approached him. Um, I'm going to, you know, chat me up on this, humor me. Uh, Jeff Waters is from Ottawa. Okay. I don't know Jeff yeah. personally. I, I've had some friends, that, uh, a friend that played in Annihilator, acquaintances that know him. The dude's a yeah. fan. He's a wicked. Oh, he's driver. incredible. Yeah. Um, love the band. Um, obviously things worked out with Marty uh, and Nick because that was, there was a magic yeah. there for sure. But how do you think it would have worked out with Jeff? Just, it, you know. Well, it's funny. About- you know, it's funny when we were rehearsing, Mar- breaking Marty and, you know, to, to get, uh, before we recorded uh, Rust in Peace, we would listen, I would listen to Alice in Hell every day. Mm-hmm. in my in my car man driving to rehearsal i love that record so it, we did not know jeff back then and jeff had his reputation and he he is a dear friend of mine in fact yeah. i helped officiate his wedding yeah. and uh and then after we officiated the wedding he goes dude the backstreet boys are in town I'm like want to go see the backstreet boys i go i'd love to go see the backstreet boys next thing you know we got like pit tickets and we're down in the pit at planet hollywood in las vegas watching the backstreet boys i'm like dude how metal is this like a bunch of metal guys watching the Backstreet Boys. So it's, it's like, me and Jeff are like, he is the funniest freaking guy. We, we've we had some great times together. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we're both sober guys. And, you know, so we can kind of laugh at some of our crazy earlier days. And, you know, he he admits, yeah. you know, he was pretty headstrong and running his band, but he did a good job. I mean, I yeah. made great records. And yeah. um, they're kind of, in my opinion, in the way Sepultura is, you know, South America's thrash icons, you know, Annihilator carries the torch for Canada, in my opinion. I think, it would um, have been, yeah, I think, it would you have know, been no, he, he's, he would, yeah, he's great. But then the problem is we wouldn't have had any more Annihilator and that would suck, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, look, there's this, there's a woman that I was dating and she introduced me, she was from Fort Worth and she introduced me to, to, to Pantera when we were down there in 88. And, um, and we got, you know, drank a bunch, got super hammered. And, you know, those guys were super fun. Phil was, that's the power metal record. And, and Dime told me, he goes, man, dad, P-Cell's changed my life, man. You know, and, and, and I was kind of brushed it off. Like, oh man, thanks. He goes, no, man, like, listen to me, man. P-Cell's changed my life. Like that was the record. And he was very sincere. They invited me up on stage the next night to jam with them at this club that they played there. The place was packed. And um, I just jumped up and played peace out with them, you know. So we had yeah. this friendship, and that was why when the you know the the list of guitar players came up, I said, "Well, look, I was just with," and he was Diamond Daryl then, right? Yeah. This is before this was before uh, the Cowboys from Hell, and and I said, "Look, I was just with Daryl, his brother Beatty, and you know." Um, so we call, you know. I said, "Hey, Dave, here's his number. Give him a call." So Dave, I'll never forget. We're sitting in my apartment. He called him up and had the talk, and, and I was like all right, how did it go? And he's like, well, he said, you know, with him comes his brother, you know, we don't, we don't need a drummer. So that kind of was a non-starter. And again, you look at it and it's like, there wouldn't have been a Pantera. I mean, they wouldn't have made Cowboys from Hell. So it all laid out the way it was supposed to. And of course, Marty 
was the perfect fit. The funny thing about Marty is we were recording uh, some demos in December of 1989. We were at the EMI Music Publishing Studio in Hollywood, right across the street from Tower Records is where our manager, Ron Lafitte, that's where his office was in the Lippman Kahane. He worked for manager Lippman Kahane at the time. And um, we were up there and Chris Poland was sitting in just cutting some solos for us. And me and Dave are just kind of going, well, fuck it. I guess we're just going to go in and do rest, the next album, Rest in Peace, the same way we did So Far So Good, So What? It'll yeah. be, you know, me, Dave, and Chuck. With, and then Jeff will join. And it, this this wanted to be me, Dave, and Nick. And I don't know, we'll figure out a guitar player later. You know, we thought we were going to cut Rust in Pieces, a three-piece. And we literally went down to Ron's office a couple floors below and and it was at night and it was after hours and, and we saw the cacophony and dragon's kiss yeah. marty friedman records laying on his desk and we're like who's this guy yeah. and and ron was like I, he said he goes i've been telling you this guy wants to do an audition and we were like me and david were like this is that guy from hawaii right from man hawaii pit in the pendulum and all and, and he said yeah and so well fuck it we got none to lose we tried 10 other guys that didn't work or bring him in, you know, and, um, you know, and Marty came in and probably the biggest, the cool, the best thing Marty did is he hired a tech, a guitar tech to come in, set all this shit up. So Marty could just walk in like a pro, pick up his guitar and just start playing. Yeah. And Marty didn't have the money. Marty was broke as broke, you know, and he didn't have a dime to his name, but he, he spent the money where it needed to be spent to, to yeah. dress, to impress, you know, and he walked in and then we were like, you know, this again he's he's got the right heart he thinks like a big time rock star you know what i mean he he thinks bigger than the normal guy and that's why he got help that but really that was a big part of how he got the gig well you know as a young guitar player uh, and a fan of a huge fan of megadeth uh i remember that when all that went down and marty got the gig but i was already a fan of cacophony and i was like that makes sense it totally makes sense yeah. for him to be a megadeth it it was it was perfect you know and um it and marty marty was a cool guy probably in the same way trujillo got the gig in metallica because he's just a cool guy and he can hang marty was like that he's just a cool guy who can hang you know what i mean he was yeah. cool he just he, he 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 told me too he said man it's been a lot of work being a solo guitar player i'm glad to just be at home in a band where i don't have to do all the work you know and i can just so for, you know, for a decade, that was cool by him. And then at the end of that decade, he said, nah, I'm going to go be a solo artist again. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was fine. It was all as it was supposed to be. I, I have a question about Marty, kind of an interesting one. Um, yeah. I was, I was a big fan of his playing. The guy's a godly guitar player. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I had his instructional videos. I, I read all his columns in the guitar magazines Right. And he really seemed to know what he was talking about. And uh, then years later, it was in the 90s. And maybe with, with the advent of grunge and stuff, it was kind of not cool to say you knew theory. And he started saying, like, I, I don't know theory. I really don't. I really don't. I'm like, dude, you're Marty Freeman. How, how is that? I don't possible? think he does. I don't think he does. The funniest thing is, and he might now, I don't know. But the funniest thing was, is Marty, you know, Marty's got this weight of just bending a note, right? So it's, it, like no matter what note he lands on his ear is so good because he's really a guy we and i got along good because we were the small town guys right and we grew up kind of in small towns and we liked a lot of the same bands 
we always said like Dave and Mark, Dave and Nick liked Led Zeppelin and Errol Smith and me and Marty like Kiss and Black Sabbath, right? It was like, you know, we were, or it's just kind of funny, the band, you know, we like Mahogany Rush and Frank Marino and Angel and all these bands and like Casablanca and stuff. But Marty has this innate way of like any note that he lands on, he goes, he's just shredding away and he can bend a note and, and no matter where it is, he can bend up into the note or he can bend down into it and land on it. And it's, as Max Norman would say, musically legal, right? And it's just such a clever thing that he has that. And um, yet it's funny, you know, so take Tornado of Souls, for instance, right? And, um, you know, Marty, as best I know, wasn't sitting around with his, you know, charts of chords and you know what musically makes sense he, he just sat down and started he started playing and he'd worked it out of course but when he played it that was just a very magical in oh. the moment solo that landed yes. there right now we played at berkeley college or we got invited to go to berkeley college on the dystopia tour because steve bailey's a good friend of mine and he's the uh, head of the bass department so he there's one of the professor one of the deans his son is a huge metalhead and he formed a megadeth ensemble at berkeley college right so part of the the curriculum for the semester is we break down megadeth songs and that's for your berkeley education right is going uh -huh. through these right it's super cool right so they bring us in and victor wooten is there because victor and steve are good friends and 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 me and vic and steve are buddies so like it's it's pretty heavy, right? Kiko's there. It's me, Dave, Kiko, Chris Adler was playing with us at the time. So there's the Megadeth guys, pretty, pretty heavy. And then Vic and Steve are there. And so they played their song. I jumped up and played, I don't know, Tornado with them or something. And, and afterwards, Kiko is sitting there going through the theory because Kiko very much knows theory. And mm. it's really Kiko's kind of a He's he's mostly a jazz musician, truth be told. He or at least that's I could say I said his passion is is jazz, right? So and when you learn jazz, you really learn everything about music. You learn harmony, you learn chord changes, you learn inversions, you learn everything. So here's Kiko at 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 uh, Berkeley, just kind of very almost casually going, yes, in this part right here, there's the major, and here comes the minor, and over here he goes to the diminishing. He's just naming these. Uh, Victor Wooten's going, holy hell, like this guy's got some depth. Like he can, he, like he can teach at Berkeley. You know what yeah. I mean? Like he knows what he's doing. And, and so for Kiko, it's funny that here he is breaking down the Marty solo with all of the um, musical terminology and theory behind it. Um, you know, I don't know if Marty knows that you'd have to ask him. My yeah. experience playing with Marty is he was just very intuitive. You know, we'd be sitting in the room and, he would just kind of again bend a note and sort of and he'd oh, just go yeah. places with it. You're like, holy hell, man! Like, where did that come from? You know? And to me, he's just kind of a channel, and 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 that's the beauty of it is he can yeah. play whatever he feels and hears. And, yeah. You know, who knows if he knows theory? You'll have to ask him one day. <laughs> you know, and, and that might happen. So uh, another question, uh, many people probably want to know, but. Uh, when you guys were getting going, was there any desire to move up to the Bay Area to, to be part of the scene? Or were you guys always like, I don't the think area? so. I mean, you know, obviously Dave had lived there before Metallica went to New York. And then from New York, he ended up back in L.A. So, um, you know, we were based in L.A. I mean, it just it seemed like that's where we were, even though it was 
you know, it never felt like home. LA never felt like home to me. I even go back there now and I have memories of stuff, but it's, it was never a welcoming home to me, you know, just the city itself. And I don't know if, you know, Dave grew up down closer to San Diego and, you know, kind of grew up a lot in the, in the Orange County beach area and stuff. So I, I don't know if it feels like home to him either. He's lived there a lot over the years, but um, you know, the Bay area was, you know, obviously was home to Dave in Metallica. And I, I never got the sense that we need to pick up and move to the Bay area. And maybe because Metallica lived there, Dave didn't want to live there. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. You know? Um, so that, that, I don't ever remember that being a conversation. For whatever reason, okay. we just stayed down in LA. Um, are you okay if we do uh, some quick word association? I'll name a Bay Area band and you tell sure. me what you think. Sure, uh, sure, sure. Um, Exodus. <clears throat> Fastest band on the planet. Uh, Testament. Um. Practice what you preach was the sweet spot for me. And I was at, what was that album? Was that book of, not book of souls, but I forgot uh, what that, I forgot that regular. No, I think it was when we Souls did, of Black. Souls of Black, Priest, Megadeth, Testament, Tour. Um, to me, that was a real coming of age record for them and a period yeah. for them. And I will say, I'm impressed with how heavy they are now um in my opinion they're a band who's gotten better with time uh death angel uh okay love death angel um in fact me and rob just collaborated on a song for the nick menza movie soundtrack um and mark and i have been in uh metal legions together so um all good um my memory of them was me and Dave, Megadeth, I think we we're a three-piece. I forget, it doesn't really matter. But we played in um, the Bay Area. I think we were a three-piece at the time. It was end of November, November 84. And Death Angel was the opening band. And I remember going out there, and their drummer was 11. I remember Andy Gallagher. <laughs> <years. laughs> and I said to Gar, I said, dude, you got to come out here and see this drummer, dude. This guy is killing it, right? Yeah. And uh, and Gar was just laughing. He's just yeah. laughing like these kids are fucking crazy. Like, Did, what are they thinking? You know? Didn't they open up? And, from, yeah. For they who? opened up for Metallica. I don't know if it was a Ruthie's or where it was, but it was like the drummer was in grade six, so he had to get his homework done and open up for Metallica. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I remember it clearly. Yeah, I mean, literally, the, the kid was eleven years old. He was playing with Megadeth. Yeah. And I think that was their debut show. I think it was their very first show ever. There's a flyer. Me and Mark Asagato were pinging it back and forth a couple of years ago. Yeah. That was their, I think that was their debut show. Um, was that, that year. Yeah. The great band. I, I, I'm, you know, I'll always be a big fan of thrash and, and, uh, you know, very bands as well as the big four. Totally, uh, totally. Forbidden. You know, I'm not as familiar with Forbidden. I mean, I, obviously I know them, I know of them and everything, but that was not a band that for whatever reason um, I got that familiar with. And that's that's on me. Shame on me. Yeah. I, I saw an interview with Glenn Alvali where he said he auditioned for Megadeth and he totally blew it. Wicked he player, did. 
I can't even remember the audition, but I do remember that. But, uh, yeah. you know, everybody got along great, too. And everybody was cool. And, yeah. you know, every you know, there was never any vibes or weird shit. And that was one thing that was cool in the Bay Area because we were all of the thrash thing. Whereas, like, down in L.A., you know, Slayer, Megadeth. Um, we kind of only became friends with Slayer just because Carrie was in the band. And I think the Slayer guys weren't that happy about that because they thought, shit, the band might break up. So... Yeah. um and then dark angel you know jim from dark angel played with us mm -hmm. there was agent uh, agent steel abattoir you know what i mean so there was a different flavor of that there whereas in the bay area everybody was full-on fucking thrash or die yeah. uh violence you know i'm so glad to see them playing again you know phil demel is a dear friend yeah um, and uh it's i'm i'm happy for him that that came back around yeah um and especially sean was not in good health a few years ago and it's really nice to see him. yeah um, yeah uh, machine head you know they are um i remember they opened for us on a tour uh at, i remember at the convention center in tucson and i remember we went in we met the guys and uh i guess that was maybe when logan mater was playing in the band okay um and meeting Rob, and uh, I remember we said to him, he said, dude, Deep Purple, you know, Machine Head, awesome name. He said, oh, thank you. He said, and then we said, you know, like Deep Purple. And he was like, huh? Like, you know, Deep Purple, Machine Head, the album. And and he, he didn't know. He didn't have any idea. And in that moment, I realized the young generation coming up did not reference things from what we were growing up. I mean, Deep Purple, you know, um, was I guess a staple of course of our generation but even even for me besides smoke on the water you know deep purple records were not something I listened to so here I am talking to Rob Flynn who's much younger than me and he's like looking at me like what the hell are you talking about it's like, <laughs> like old man music you know what yeah. I mean so but uh but yeah they were great man you know and, and super heavy a great vibe and, um you know, part of a part of a new generation, because I think that was on the cryptic writings tour. So that would have been either euthanasia or cryptic. So mid yeah. to late nineties, you know, they, they really drove, uh, you know, they, they sailed the flag for that, for that next generation coming up. Um, I have to say as a violence fan, when Phil joined machine head, I was just like, yes, this is awesome. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, unfortunately, I think the relationship is a bit strained now, but you know, We'll get into it this time. Maybe down the road, I, we could do this again uh, if you're available. But uh, I have a theory about why a lot of bands don't work out. And it's a clash of personalities. And there's different classifications I've developed for different people and bands and everything. Like, you always struck me as the type of guy who's even keel. Like, you're well-spoken. You know, you can get along with, with everybody. You have some type A tendencies. And you can put your foot down when you have to. Where we were talking about when I said, like, how do you think Jeff Waters would have done in Annihilator? I'm uh, sorry, in Megadeth. It would have been yeah. interesting to see the music you guys would have came up with, but him and Dave Mustaine seem to be very, very type A. It would have been very interesting yeah. to see how that would have panned out. Well, I'll give you an example. Mike Portnoy is a dear friend of mine. We do a lot of stuff. Metal Legions, he played in Hale with me. And he called me when the Megadeth drum position was open. And he called me and he said, hey, man, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw my name in the hat. I said, I said Mike, I love you. You know Megadeth good enough to know you wouldn't last. By the first chorus of Symphony of Destruction, you and Dave would be in a fight. 
and the band would be over. And he said, I know, but I still had to offer. And, you yeah. know, the funny thing is, is because Mike, you know, Mike is the leader of the band. You know what I mean? And I said, you know, you can't have two leaders in Megadeth. There's one and that's it. So yeah. it, so we always we laugh about it. It's funny because, you know, Mike loves the music. He's a fan and we're friends. And and um, but it's just like in some bands, it's like no matter how awesome it looks on paper it's like this is just never gonna be a reality and that's why to me you know i've been in some groups with um my other friends who are also famous and they go oh super group it's like man we did not build this as a super group man no. we're just i just called my friends because i know they play well they have experience we've worked together we like each other and we can play it we can make good music together that's why we're playing together uh the super group mindsets is like oh let's just on paper put some famous people together and then we'll go that out and we'll sell tickets because somehow a bunch of names on a marquee will sell tickets that's never the right way to it should always be the music first you know yeah. and then and then hey if it if it sells some tickets and we can make some money great but it should always start with you know the personalities the music and exactly and putting making that happen first no, absolutely um you are a rep for PV, and uh, right. I have a I have a question for you. Uh, okay. For musicians these days, of course, we have the advent of social media and everything. The advent; it's been around for a while. If someone was like, "I really want to get a sponsorship or an endorsement with this company," what would be their best approach? Like, try and build a big following on like Instagram, YouTube. Like, what 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 advice would you give someone who's like, "Hey, man, you know, I'd really like to." I, you know, work with this company and, and uh, kind of look at there, there's a saying in that side of the business. Is this person a player of influence? Right. And especially if you're going to have your name on the guitar. Right. If you want a signature model, there is a period in the late 2000s. Everybody had a signature guitar. It just became the thing. Every guitar manufacturer is, oh, let's get this person to give them a signature model. It's like, you know, to me, in my opinion, you kind of devalue. Um, you know how the specialness of having a signature model you know um because the idea being if you put this guy's name or woman's name on it it will sell right uh, and we can make money from it so look make no mistake it is a it is a corporate venture to make money period right yeah. just like michael jordan's name on a tennis shoe <laughs> right so make no mistake about it and it's the same with a record company record companies don't go to see bands that don't put bodies in the building you know they go to see groups and artists who have attraction and there's a vibe and there's a thing and they think they can sell records. That's what, that's what they want, you know, because, and they want to, you know, I had a manager tell me one time while I was working at PV, he said, he goes, I tell my bands, I am never willing to work harder than you. You know, if you're willing to stay up till three in the morning and pounding the pavement and working and doing everything you do, so will I. But if you think I'm going to do all the work, you got the wrong manager. You know, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. So with the endorsement thing, it's the same thing. Companies are looking to align with artists that they feel um, will be a mutually beneficial partnership to help sell their guitars or their amplifiers or their strings or whatever. So, um, yeah, if you play great, that's great. But, you know, it, it, it's more about are you famous? You know, are you, are you a player of influence? So following you know? does matter. Of course it does. I mean, Joe Satriani is a player of influence, right? People, people want to play like Joe, right? Absolutely. I'll buy his guitar. I'll buy his amp. What strings does he use? 
hell freaking what haircut does he have i just want to be like joe satriani you know, and i just use that as an example because he's one of those guys ingbe's one of those guys you know there's people and those are the superstar rock star guys you know and there's there's levels under that of course but um you know that's that's the bottom line are you a player of influence absolutely um so i'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions and then uh, i'll do our outro and and stop then i'll stop the recording i'll I'll still talk with you for a minute after, but I really appreciate okay. the time, Dave. Like, yeah, this is awesome. No problem. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> so maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a creepy thing. I don't know. But I uh, have Taco Tuesday to get to here in a little while, so we're good, though. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, uh, do you have any uh, tinnitus issues? Any problems with your hearing? I don't. I'm good with my hearing. You know, probably because... In 1994, on the euthanasia tour, we got over to the in-air technology, which was brand new at the time. I think us, Errol Smith, a couple of other artists, we moved over to it very quickly. And um, it, that helped a lot because you can, you know, again, you've got, think like we're in earbuds, right? You know, and then you can just kind of turn them up or down. and That helped, you know. It's, it's cymbals and, and, and high-frequency guitars, things like that. Those are what blow your ears out, so. My ears are uh, good. And was that, uh, was it sure? Was that the company you went with at the time or? No, it was, I think it was a company called Future Sonics. And he okay. was the first guy doing it. Um, he was always out on the road with us. And again, whatever other artists he had, there's only a few of us. And it was expensive, but we, we made the move. We spent the money and did it. And I'm glad we did. Um, I really enjoyed the, the Lucid. I checked out some of the songs. I really. Thank I, you. I, I, I don't even know how to kind of, for me it was a bit trippy but in a cool rock way maybe it's okay. uh, um uh, i thought that was really uh really cool i really like the video for uh Mastronaut. Mm -hmm. yeah i really like that song right. and i also really like uh dieth am i pronouncing the band properly your other projects dieth dieth yeah i was making i was making fun of while we're shooting the video i was making I was using my Shakespearean voice. I said, one must dieth unto themselves to live again. Yeah. Like a sort of, you know, Game of Thrones narrative. And we're uh, like, dieth, that's pretty cool. So that's that's how we came up with the yeah. name. Uh, and now, is there any, well, do you think there'll be any gigs or uh, anything coming up with that band? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we'll, we have some more announcements coming out later this month about it. So no, that, that thing, that thing's already sailing off the, Sailing yeah. off the runway, yeah. I, in the hall of the hang of the hanging serpents, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, and one of the members is from Entombed AD. Yes, yeah, Guilherme, the guitar player. Yes, yeah. I, I always get those bands mixed up because I remember Entombed in the early nineties. They like took right. down to B or something, and back then you're like, how do they sound so heavy? But and then there's yeah. there's two incarnations of the band, and then there was Entombed AD, I think. Right. But um, yeah, I'd love to see both bands if you ever uh, come to Canada, for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's a website for both of them? Uh, yes. Uh, Lucid, God, you know, I can't remember if they're Lucid Band or Lucid Official. I think it's Lucid Band. And then um, Dieth, I think Dieth is the same, dietheband.com. Okay. Do you yeah. ever see yourself doing any other types of genres, like ever going into country or anything? No. I don't. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm doing what I want to do. Okay. I'm doing. What, I, I'm. I'm a rock guy, man. You know, and rock could be just rock. It could be freaking thrash metal. 
you know, power metal, death metal, you know, it doesn't have to just be metal, but you know, I'm just, I'm a rock guy, man. It's what I, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I like everything from Daughtry to Dieth, you know? Um, did you ever need to take a break from the bass? Meaning, uh, one of the things I love about Gary Holt, I remember reading an interview with him in like 92 and he's like, dude, when I come off tour, I don't touch the guitar for three months. I play basketball. Where another guy's yeah. like maybe Ingve or Alex Skull, and like it's like, do they ever put the guitar down? I'm more of the Gary Holt type. I come off tour and I I will just set the bass down. I'll uh, you know I'll, I'll just I have a bunch of instruments in my house, and sometimes I walk by them. I'm like, yeah, not today. Then other times I walk by and go, yeah, let me pick that thing up. Or I'll yeah. sit at my piano and write, you know, and just play and. And then just try to play for enjoyment, you know, because when you're on tour, you're playing the same songs night after night. Um, you're doing it for the purposes of a performance. And I think probably the thing most of us professionals who are playing for a living all the time in the studio and on the road is you're always trying to just sort of be in touch with the joy of it. You know, I learned that from Rudy Sarzo. He was telling me that, that at one point in his career, I think after a lot of his big days with White Snake and stuff is... He said, you know, I just needed to get the joy back into my playing, you know, yeah. and just really enjoy it for, for why I fell and just fall in love with playing. And so he, he and I have had many conversations about that. Um, it's okay to just go play basketball <laughs> and yeah. go back and play guitar later, you know. Um, did you have a favorite hair metal band back in the day that you never told anyone about? You know what? I, I love hair metal, man. I really do. I love, I'll listen to Hair Nation, which is our Sirius XM channel. Uh, Dokken probably being one of my favorite. And Rat, man. I love Oh, yeah. Rat. I mean, pound, pound for pound, man, Rat is is just fantastic, you know? Um, of course, I love Steel Panther. Um, and um, yeah, those are you know, those are those probably probably Rat and Dokken are out of out of that whole genre um, are probably two of my two of my favorites for sure. Last two, and I am putting yeah. you on the spot. Uh, who would be in the Big Five if there was a Big Five? Well, I think if you opened that gate at all, you'd you'd have to be Big Six because you'd let in Exodus, and then you'd probably let in Overkill. You know, because you'd have to get a West Coast and East Coast, right? Because yeah. I think it starts to go like that. And, um, you know, Exodus, if there was a big five, it would be Exodus for sure. Because, I mean, look, from them came Kirk Hammett. They were staples of the scene up there. You know, I remember Kerry King telling me, like, Tom Hunting's the shit, man. Tom Hunting's the guy. And I'm, and it, I, it's my opinion that after Kerry played with us, he met the Exodus guys. He saw Exodus play. He learned how Tom Hunting played. He went home and, and made Dave Lombardo play like Tom Hunting. <laughs> and that's why yeah. Slayer got so fast. Oh, the guy's a you monster, know, because, yeah. Right? I mean, those five shows Kerry did with us up to the Bay Area opened his eyes to like, wow, this is how it's done. And, that, and then he, he went back to L.A. and, you know, he... He carried on away from Megadeth and he carried on the Slayer. But I mean, he whipped Slayer into shape because he had yeah. seen, you know, thine eyes had seen the glory of, of what thrash metal really was from the Bay Area. And that, that you know, helped Slayer become Slayer. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, hopefully down the road we could do this again because, uh, you know, I could talk to you forever. Uh, I'm going to post all the rel relevant links for uh, the Lucid and Dieth uh, down in the description box. I just Perfect. want to thank you again so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. It's been an honor. You are welcome. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it, man.